0: It's only 13 words in the New Testament, but it's been called the greatest sermon ever preached. It's the message that changed my life and ministry, and it's the single source of protection, freedom, forgiveness, and peace. And you're about to see why. This is the Shut Up, Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler author of the book Shut Up Devil, creator of the Shut Up Devil app. I'm all about shutting down the lies and struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life, and I'm here to do it every single week with a live online audience. I'd love for you to join me live on Thursdays at 8 p.m. central at kylewinkler.org live. It was almost a decade ago, January 2013. I was just four months from graduating seminary, It was barely a month since I stepped down from my leadership position in another ministry to step out into my own. For at least a couple years up to that point, I had dabbled into interviewing guests who had powerful stories of healing and deliverance. I might have recorded a handful by that time. Passion was bubbling up in me. I thought I had a message to share. That's why I stepped out when I did. Little did I know, though, everything was about to change. My life, my message, my ministry. From only 13 words in the New Testament. But that's getting ahead of myself. I often teach, as many do, that the enemy studies our lives to collect evidence that he uses to accuse us at just the right times. The evidence he collects is mostly made up of our weaknesses, inadequacies, flaws, failures, feelings. So, stepping out into my own ministry, I guess I should have expected some sort of attack. But it came, like most do, out of the blue.
1: The attack was a mental one. This
0: January morning, suddenly I was reminded of my every sin since potty training. I was confronted with all the reasons why I should not, could not, must not be in ministry. I was consumed with the reasons why I wasn't perfect enough, healed enough, fixed enough, not enough of something to be used by God.
1: On top of it all, the reminders
0: for at least the next few mornings I awoke to were these evil forebodings, that's what the Bible calls them, their constant sense of anxiety and dread, just this constant fear that all my faults and failures, especially the ones from after I became a Christian, would catch up with me. I remember hearing three things that week. Look what you've done. God can't use you. Shut it all down. And I almost did. I almost walked away. Whatever you're seeing here, these broadcasts, the Shut Up Devil app, the books, the speaking engagements, all of this was close to never happening. Until heaven stepped in. In the most unassuming way at first. Remember how I said I was hosting interviews with people? Well, the week of this attack, I was reading a book to prepare for an interview. And this book contained a scripture that I had heard plenty times before, since childhood, really. A scripture that I had read many times before. It was a familiar one. Probably going to be familiar to you, too. So let me take you there. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29. And it's John the Baptist as he first lays eyes on Jesus, the one he labored to prepare the way for for so many years. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thirteen words there.
1: Thirteen words. That whether... John, knew it or
0: not, described what was about to turn the world upside down. These 13 words are what famous 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, you know him? Very popular in the 1800s. Those 13 words are what he called the greatest sermon ever preached. These 13 words When I saw them with fresh eyes turn my world upside down, I'll get to that. I'll get to what I saw. I'll get to what it did. But these 13 words have the power to turn your world upside down too, if you'll really take in the significance of what they mean. That's why I'm teaching this message. Not just to tell you my story, but so that his story might change your story. To help with that, we're going to unpack the verse, break it up into a couple words or phrases here from John's announcement. Then I'm going to put it all together to show you what it means for you. And I just can't overestimate how huge this is if you'll really get it. So we'll start with the Lamb of God. If you were raised in the church, you've undoubtedly heard Jesus referred to as the Lamb of God before. If you're new to the faith, it might sound a little strange to you. But of all the symbols that Jesus is likened to in the Bible, like the Lion of Judah or the beloved Bridegroom, of all the symbols the Bible uses, the most common one for Jesus is the Lamb. The book of Revelation alone refers to Jesus as a lamb more than 25 times. It describes that the elders around the throne cry out day and night, worthy is the lamb. Like a lamb led to the slaughter is how the prophet Isaiah described him. And I could go on and on with references of Jesus like a lamb. But why a lamb? Maybe you wonder. Well, because from the very beginning, a lamb is what God selected as the means of protection, forgiveness, and reconciliation of his people.
1: There's so much to these concepts and
0: how a lamb or a goat was used for these. And the two words, by the way, you're going to see them used interchangeably here, and that's how they are throughout the Bible. They're used interchangeably, lamb and goat. But the freedom, the protection, the reconciliation, as I said, throughout the Bible, it's a lamb that most often is used to represent these. All of the details would need its own book, but in this message, I'm going to do my best to simplify everything for you to what matters most as it relates to John the Baptist's announcement and you. So first, if you know the story of Israel's escape from their slavery to Egypt, you might remember that God instructed his people to slaughter an unblemished lamb and smear its blood on their door frames. Later that night, as the Lord was putting the Egyptians into chaos, God's people were to take the lamb's blood, put it on the door frames so that it would be a marker that the Lord would see to pass over that family and protect them. In Exodus 12, 13, the Lord says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So that's why the lamb is called the Passover lamb. And that's why the lamb is revered in Jewish culture, because it was the literal symbol of their protection and freedom. It's what allowed them to escape Egypt. Then, as Israel was free and traveling to their promised land, you might remember Mount Sinai. This is the place the Ten Commandments were given. It's the place where the law was given. The Ten Commandments are just the first ten of 613 do's and don'ts that the Lord gave His people through Moses for various reasons. And as the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 5.13, this is the moment the institution of the law was the moment when people's sins were held against them in such a way that separated them from God. I'll read to you how Paul puts it here. He says, Yes, people sinned even before the law was given. But it was not counted as sin, because there was not yet any law to break. So as part of the law, God also outlined how the people could basically remain on his good side after they broke the law after they sinned, how they could get back on his good side, at least temporarily. And it's all summed up in a word that's known as atonement. That's a big word for you. Break it up into syllables and you'll get an idea of what it means. at one meant It's to put someone at one with God, to put them back at peace in relationship with God. And atonement includes two different kinds of events really. Forgiveness and reconciliation. You see like in our human relationships, you can forgive someone who wronged you, but that doesn't mean you're friends with them again. It doesn't mean you are reconciled. But atonement included both. God desired both. Forgiveness and reconciliation. And the Lamb was part of how it happened. I'm going to breeze over a lot here to get you to what John the Baptist was illustrating. In Exodus 20, the law is giving starting with the Ten Commandments. And the law continues there chapter after chapter after chapter. It's not the most fun read, but it details what to do and what not to do for all kinds of circumstances. And as I said, it also detailed what to do to make up for breaking the commandments, which were daily animal offerings that were always a part of it. But John the Baptist's announcement of Behold the Lamb was calling to mind a particular day, which the original readers Jewish readers would have profoundly understood as they read John's Gospel. John was pointing to what's called the Day of Atonement, which was an annual event outlined by the Lord in Leviticus for the people's yearly forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God. It starts in Leviticus 16.7, where the Lord outlines that the high priest must choose two unblemished goats in this day of atonement. One of the goats was to be used as an offering for the Lord. Its blood would be sprinkled as a sin offering. But here's where it gets even more interesting. The second goat, what's often called the scapegoat, they would symbolically put all the sins of the people on it and then let it loose into the wilderness for it to take the sins away where it would never be seen again.
1: So to simplify this for you,
0: the sacrificed goat appeased God. It was the sacrifice, the work, the blood that basically covered for their sins so that they could be good with God. The scapegoat was essentially then God signed back to the people that the sins over that last year were forgiven and that those last year's sins were now taken far from them never to be brought back up again.
1: Now, I know I just covered a lot of theology there,
0: but here's the gist. To God's people, an unblemished lamb was the symbol of their protection, the symbol of their freedom, the symbol of the forgiveness of their sins, and the symbol of their peace with God. So you can see why the lamb is such a huge deal. So, John the Baptist's exclamation, Behold the Lamb of God, is far more rich than perhaps we in our modern culture can fully comprehend. But at its basics. John's saying, Behold your protector. Behold your deliverer. Behold the one who came to establish peace with God. Behold the Lamb who God is about to place our sins upon, who will take them away. He's saying, People... The day of atonement is almost here. The one that will end all need for future days of atonement. But John the Baptist goes on even further. He doesn't say, behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the Jews or the sin of Israel. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this too could be its own message. There's so much in this. But in those 13 words, John announced the message of all messages. That Jesus was the divine scapegoat for the world. Jews and Gentiles, all flesh, just as it was prophesied so many years before. Jesus had come to take away the sin and its power to separate people from God and forever satisfy God's wrath against it. I mean
1: get the picture here. Every vile
0: rotten and wrong thing, all the murder, every perversion, the worst things that you can imagine. John declared that Jesus would soon be sacrificed to forgive, and that they all would be placed on Jesus' unblemished self for Him to take away so that God remembers them no more and holds them against people no more. Now, I'm not saying that this means everyone is saved. This isn't universalism. But it does mean that God is not mad anymore. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For me, for so many years, I sat in church and I heard that said week after week. It was part of the liturgical tradition I was raised in. Now, of course, when I was a child, I didn't have the capacity or ability or the tools or anything to understand everything that I just described to you. And really even after my born-again experience at 16 years old and for the next decade practically, I didn't know what I'm showing you here. Until that morning, barely one month into my own ministry, when the devil had brought up my every sin and insinuated all the consequences for them and that I still somehow had to pay for them. So much that I thought I couldn't be used by God. So much that I almost walked away from ministry. But God led me to this verse. To do the very thing that John said, to behold the Lamb of God.
1: And it was that word behold that gripped me.
0: You see, Behold isn't a quick glance, it's a close study. It was time for me to finally see it, and understand it, and be freed by it. And I'm telling you, that's what happened. It wasn't a physical vision, I didn't see it with my eyes, I didn't hear it with my ears. Yet what happened touched me far deeper than anything I could ever sense with my senses. It was like as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.18 that the eyes of my heart were opened and revelation of the word just poured into me to where my mind shifted from seeing my every sin on me to seeing my every sin on Jesus. And as I beheld Him as the Lamb, it was as if I was at the foot of the cross experiencing what the prophet Isaiah meant when he said in Isaiah 53 5 that by his bruises, by his wounds, we are healed. This journey and encounter at the cross is the entire basis of my first book, Silent Satan. In it, I detail what I beheld. In short, I saw the Lamb of God being the final once-for-all sacrifice for my sins, for your sins, for the sin of the world, shredded upon the altar of the earth. I beheld so personally that final day of atonement, that everything in the law and the prophets pointed to. I beheld that final scapegoat that, as Hebrews 10.4 says, did what the blood of bulls and goats could never do. It took away sins forever. As Colossians 2.14 says, nailed them to the cross, and by doing so, killed the enemy's power to condemn. There's so much here that one message cannot possibly convey. There's so much that words cannot possibly illustrate.
1: But I want to take you there. To the cross. This moment of the finished work.
0: To hear some of the words that Jesus said. And I'm asking the Lord right now. By the power of His Holy Spirit to allow these words to transcend time and be translated to speak so uniquely to you right now.
1: At the cross,
0: to the right and to the left of Jesus were two thieves, but they weren't the only criminals around him. No, the hateful mockers, the cruel soldiers, the greedy Judas, the coward disciples, and the masses who yelled, crucify him, they all played a part in this day. But the sins that consumed Jesus weren't theirs alone. Those bruises were made for future sins too, for yours and mine. As John said, for the world's.
1: If there was ever a moment For God to be angry at
0: people, this would have been it. If there was ever a moment for him to obliterate the masses, this would have been it.
1: But instead,
0: all his wrath against sin wasn't directed to the people that deserved it. It was directed to his son who agreed to endure it out of love for the people who put him there. And then he said from the cross, one of the most amazing things ever. Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. I could put my name in there. I could put your name in there. And actually, I encourage you to do it. To really hear him cry out for you. Father forgive Kyle. Father forgive. For they didn't know. They don't know. What they did. Are doing. Will do.
1: If you ever.
0: Wanted a definition of grace. This is it. As Jesus was suffering the most brutal execution ever for things he did not do. He declared, Father, don't hold their ignorance against them. Don't punish them for their guilt. Not for things now or in the future. I take it all upon me in order that they may live.
1: Friends, hear me. Jesus was punished so that
0: you don't have to be. Up until the day that I really got this revelation of the finished work of Jesus, I was essentially trying to pay for my failures through just a bunch of different things that amounted to a bunch of self-punishment, really. But after beholding the lengths that Jesus went to do it for me, My attempts to pay for it myself through self-deprecation or good works all just seem more dishonoring to his sacrifice than anything. If blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrew says, couldn't do it, my best works weren't going to pay for anything. Do you know that this is basically the revelation that kick-started the Protestant Reformation? Martin Luther, he used to flog himself. He used to subject himself to all kinds of self-torture to try to be holy enough and work off his sins, to pay his penance. But then he got the revelation of Jesus as the Lamb.
1: And he said, and I quote,
0: If Jesus Christ took on the sins of the world, then that includes my sins, too. This means I no longer carry the guilt of my sin, and I need not punish myself. I suspect some of you might need to reflect upon that, too. If Jesus took on the sins of the world like John the Baptist announced and the Apostle Paul affirmed many times over, then that includes yours too, and that means you don't have to punish yourself, and that means God's not punishing you either. On the cross, Jesus took on all of our sin. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Christ, who never sinned to be the offering for our sin, some virgins say to actually become our sin. And when all the sin of the world was put on him, the divine scapegoat, to the point to where he wasn't even recognizable, Jesus cried out three final words Words that I never really understood until I beheld him as the Lamb. Jesus said, To die," which means it is finished. The day of atonement was done. The day. Never needing repeated. Why? Because the ultimate offering for reconciliation was made. The ultimate sacrifice for forgiveness was complete, and it did what no animal sacrifice could do. It made those who would accept it righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 continues, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. It was the divine exchange. He became our sin. And he gave us his sinlessness, his righteousness. The moment of the cross was not a mere covering of sin like all the animal sacrifices temporarily accomplished before. It wasn't just an act of putting the last year's sins on a scapegoat and sending it off into the wilderness. No, it was the ultimate act of placing the sins of the world, past, present, future, on the Lamb of God, who took them away, crucified them, killed them for good. And therefore, would give you His righteousness, putting you who believe at peace with God forever. If you have never believed, If you're listening or watching and you've never believed, you can believe right now. You just have to pray, God, I believe Jesus is your son. I believe he died to forgive my sins so that I am made right with you. If you're just now believing or you've been a believer for years, I want you to hear Jesus declare over you. It is finished. And because it is finished, God is not mad at you, nor will He ever be. He is not counting your sins against you anymore. You are not still awaiting punishment. There's nothing that can disqualify you from being used by God. There's nothing you have to prove to Him to be used by Him either. You know, when God showed me all of this in that week that I was being attacked. It wasn't because I needed to be forgiven or saved all over again. It was because in order to do what I'm doing today, in order to fulfill the call of God in my life, I needed to finally understand the significance of the cross was that I was forgiven once and for all, whether I feel like it or not. Because I'm telling you, the truth is, I don't always feel like it. I don't always feel holy. I don't often feel holy. I don't always feel forgiven. I'm not perfect. And if I didn't know what Jesus did on the cross, like the full scope of it, I'd be trying to do ministry still battling a whole bunch of fear and anxiety and maybe even using ministry as a way to pay some penance. You know, there are people out there that do that. They got into ministry because they think that it's their way of working off what they did in the past. And you help very few people that way because really all you're doing is ministering to yourself. I know some of you are feeling this same way. Some of you are wrestling accusations and regrets of things from this morning, yesterday, a decade ago. Some of you are wrestling things about yourself that you've tried so hard to change, but can't change. And you're wondering, can God love someone like me? You don't feel holy. You don't feel forgiven. You still feel dirty. Well, like I said, you will feel that way from time to time, first because you're human and are imperfect, but also because there is an enemy whose role is to remind you of your imperfections and make you feel dirty. But let me leave you with one last revelation about the Lamb. In the Old Testament, when the people presented their sacrifice to the Lord for the forgiveness of their sin, they brought their sacrifice to the priest? The priest did not inspect the man. He didn't evaluate and analyze and say, okay, let's dissect your life and see if you are in fact worthy enough for this sacrifice to even count. The priest didn't inspect the man. He inspected the lamb. The lamb had to be up to the standard. That's what mattered most. And let me tell you, friend, today, as you watch or listen even now, God is not inspecting you to see if you are worthy enough. No. He looks at the lamb who you have placed your faith in. And I have great news. Jesus, the lamb of God, met God's standard for the forgiveness of your sins, which as Hebrews 10, 12 says, is good for all time. And that's why the elders around the throne of God continue to sing. And we should join them. Worthy is the Lamb. Friend, this revelation of Jesus' finished work changed my ministry, changed everything. As I said at the beginning, I went into ministry thinking I had one message, and I came out of this experience with God's message. And I'm as passionate about it today as I ever was. As a matter of fact, this was a difficult message to prepare for because I'm that passionate. There's just so much in me that it's sometimes hard to organize it all. But it is the gospel. And there's so much more that I could say. And I do in the book that I wrote that chronicles this revelation. It's the first book I wrote. It's titled Silent Satan, Shutting Down the Enemy's Attacks, Threats, Lies, and Accusations. And I know that the title... Sounds similar to my newest book, Shut Up Devil, but I assure you it's a very different book. This one is the start of it all. It's my journey to grace. And I wrote it in a way that takes you on a journey there too. In it, I lead you to behold the lamb, to see what I saw and hear what I heard. I teach you about the power of Jesus' blood And then how to live in the victory of the finished work so that you never question your standing before God again. Silent Satan is available on my website at kylewinkler.org slash silent satan. And I'd be happy to sign it for you before it ships. Of course, if you haven't yet ordered my recent book, Shut Up Devil, I recommend you get both together. They complement each other so well. Again, kylewinkler.org slash silent satan is the place to order. Okay, that does it for the shut up devil show. Remember God is good and he is for you and we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org on our podcast and wherever you get your social media. Don't forget wherever you're watching or listening to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. See you next time.